Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It's always great to be back with you. We are headed to the second half of Daniel 4. I invite you to turn there. We have another good study before us, so let us get right to our text. Daniel 4, and we begin again with verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely, and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of heaven had their home, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king." They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you, after you come to know that heaven rules." Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power? and for the honor of my majesty. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, they shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. 
All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. In the morning of October 2nd in the year 1919, Mrs. Woodrow Wilson, the wife of the president, found her husband unconscious on the bathroom floor in the private quarters of the White House. The president was bleeding from a cut on his head and was suffering from a massive stroke that left his left side paralyzed and impaired his vision. His wife and his doctor, Dr. Grayson, the two of them made a wall of secrecy and protected the president. They shielded the president from people visiting him and kept the severity of his condition from being known by the rest of the country. For 17 months, the weakened president lay in his bed on the brink of death barely able to even write his own name. The country and the world knew none of this. Edith Wilson screened everything that came to the president. She decided what was important enough to be taken to the president and what could be handled without him. All communication with the president went through his wife. She entered the room he was in with messages and came back out with either verbal instructions or the scrawl of a signature on a piece of paper. She effectively ran the executive branch of the government for the remainder of the president's second term. Edith Wilson called this period her stewardship. Other historians are not as kind and either referred to her as the secret president or the first woman president. Well, something similar happened to this a couple of thousand years ago when the most powerful man in the world was forced to step aside from leading his kingdom for a period of seven years because of his pride before the living God of the Hebrew people. We do not know who was in charge during this time, but we do know the patience of the God of heaven had run its course. Remember that 25 to 30 years have gone by from the events of chapter 3. This is taking place roughly 25 to 30 years after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the furnace. Daniel is now about 45 to 50 years old, And chapter 4 is really a testimony to some degree by King Nebuchadnezzar of his encounter with the God of the Hebrew people. Now this testimony went out to all the people of the nation. Nebuchadnezzar reported this second dream to Daniel and then take another look at the wording of verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for a time and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. Nothing in Nebuchadnezzar's account suggests that Daniel said anything until the king had finished telling him the dream. But now, Daniel was astonished. His thoughts troubled him. The text indicates he hesitated. The king still wanted an answer. He still wanted to know what the dream meant. 
I think there is a reason the king might have been optimistic, and it could be the reason he told Daniel not to be troubled. Thinking back to chapter 2, the first dream that Daniel interpreted for the king, had this terrifying image, this statue, but yet it ended up being good news. Remember the first dream told the king that he was the leader of one of the most glorious empires this world has ever known. There was some reason to be optimistic, but now it's a little bit of a different situation. This time the dream was bad news for the king, which is why Daniel humbly responds, My Lord made the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. In other words, Daniel's telling the king, King, if only this pertained to your enemies instead of you. Daniel might have feared being the one to give the king the bad news, but it's kind of an interesting and compassionate statement by Daniel. Because of his position in the government, Daniel knew about Nebuchadnezzar's pride, his worship of pagan gods, and his military campaigns in which he had thousands of people killed. And yet, Daniel still had compassion and respect for this lost soul. Let this be a lesson to us. Starting in verse 20, Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream, and really the first few verses are the good news. Notice the picture given in the text. This large tree grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth. And again in verse 21, whose leaves were lovely, and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of heaven had their home. The good news is that this large tree represented King Nebuchadnezzar. His empire had grown to become larger and stronger than any empire that had existed up to this point. Verse 22 tells us the king's dominion, his rule extended to the end of the earth. He had grown strong. His empire reached a large portion of the known world. The times of the Gentiles began with King Nebuchadnezzar. Notice again the wording of verse 22. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. But now, here comes the bad news. Let's read verses 23 and 24 again. And as much as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron, and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. The bad news was that the king had seen an angel in his dream. This angel came down from heaven with a decree from the Most High. In a world with many false gods, this is the highest God, the one true God. He has sent down the angel to chop down the tree and destroy it. It points to the sovereignty of God. It points to his power to raise up kings and to remove them. King Nebuchadnezzar would be removed from his position of authority and leadership. He would be removed from his royal palace. But take another look at verse 25. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. The most powerful man on the earth would live as a wild animal in a demented state for a period of seven years. 
Nebuchadnezzar would live in the open air with the beasts of the field. He would act and live like a beast, eating the grass of the field. I touched on this a little bit last time. There's actually three different conditions where this happens. Zoanthropy is just simply where the person thinks of him or herself as an animal and begins to imitate and copy their way of life. Then there is lycanthropy. The only difference is that with lycanthropy, the people think of themselves as wolves. And then there is boanthropy, where the person thinks they are an ox. With all three of these conditions, these people are found living with animals and eating the grass of the field. You actually begin to think that you're an animal, so you grow your hair out, and your nails grow to become like claws. You live like a wild animal, and outwardly your behavior is irrational, but the inner conscience remains unchanged. This is the type of thing that was about to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. If this is what happened to him, it could explain how he was able in verse 34 to turn his eyes toward heaven. The king would be driven from his dwelling place. His dwelling would be with the beasts of the field. He would eat grass, the herbs of the field. And notice the wording says he would eat grass like oxen. The idea is that he would eat things from the wild just like the oxen do. The phrase, wet with the dew of heaven, means he would live without shelter. He would live out in the open for a period of seven years. And in that part of the world, in the summer, the high temperatures get to be 110 to 120 degrees with high humidity and down below freezing in the winter. Now, this would all happen for one reason. This would go on until one thing changed. It's listed for us at the end of verse 25. Till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. As I said before, we know from people today with this condition that the person is still conscious enough to make prayer possible. This extended time of humiliation was intended to teach this arrogant man to respect God's authority over the affairs of men, and that the position he held as king was only by the permission of God. The kingdom God allowed him to have would now be taken from him. But there was protection for the king. Notice verse 26. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. It was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. There was a little bit of hope. Nebuchadnezzar would be assured to return to his position as king. Recognize that with this idea of heaven ruling, many times the word of God will make a reference to God by simply referring to where he lives. It was a way of recognizing the fact that all of the false gods that men come up with, they dwell on the earth. But Daniel's God, he dwelt in heaven. Once Nebuchadnezzar finally realized that it is the Hebrew God who rules, his kingdom would be returned to him. Seven years was a long time. Even today, politicians are always hungry for power and control. And under any normal circumstances, his successor would have been waiting to take his place. But God, God kept his promise. Nebuchadnezzar did return to the throne. Verse 27 is a very important verse. Take a look. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. The Roman Catholic Church uses this verse to teach salvation by works. Listen to how the Latin Vulgate translates this verse. Cancel thy sins by deeds of charity in thine iniquities by deeds of kindness to the poor. A modern edition of the Catholic Bible says, Atone for your sins with righteousness, 
in your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed so that your prosperity may be prolonged. Be careful as you approach this verse. Most translations say something like break away now from your sins by doing righteousness or by being righteous. Some just simply say by doing what is right. But if you look at the New King James, you'll see the word being is italicized. The same with the word doing in the New American Standard. These words are italicized because these words are not in the original text. They're just added to our Bible so it reads a little smoother in our language. The original text simply states, break away from your sins by righteousness. Break away from your sins by righteousness. So what is Daniel saying then? In verse 27, we see Daniel warning and pleading with the king. He tells the king that his advice is to break away from sins. But how do you break away from sins? How do you obtain righteousness? There's only one way, by obtaining the righteousness of Christ through faith. Romans 3.22, memorize that verse, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For Nebuchadnezzar, this would have been faith in Yahweh. You cannot just simply turn from your sin. You cannot just start doing righteous acts. Righteousness only comes through faith. Faith in God and the righteousness of God would be the change that could lead Nebuchadnezzar down the path of showing mercy to the poor and turning from his sins. If the king came to faith in God, perhaps this seven years of insanity would not have to happen. Nebuchadnezzar trusted himself. He needed to trust in God. Remember, this was the guy that murdered Zedekiah's sons and then blinded him so that the last thing that Zedekiah saw was the slaughter of his own two sons. Nebuchadnezzar forced the people to worship the idol. He tried to throw Daniel's friends into the furnace. And this was the guy who had no problem spending money. He had spent large amounts of money conquering other lands and on building projects, but he neglected the poor. It was the poor people, the laborers, who suffered as they built the empire for their king. If Nebuchadnezzar came to trust in God, it should have transformed how he treated the poor. In verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar starts to speak in the third person. He did this in verse 19, and he does this all the way through verse 33. Daniel had warned the king to humble himself before God, but then in verse 29, our text tells us that 12 months went by. Again, it shows both the arrogance of the king and it shows the patience of God. 12 months go by. The king was walking on the roof of the royal palace. Roofs in that day were normally flat, and he was just sort of overlooking his empire. And the text tells us in verse 30 that he said to himself, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Notice the wording here. The king uses the words, I have built by my mighty power for the honor of my majesty. This is my kingdom. I built this. Now the city of Babylon itself was started soon after the flood of Noah. In Genesis 11, you see the people coming together to not just build the tower, but to build a city, the city of Babylon. The wording of our text indicates the building up of Babylon. At the time of Nebuchadnezzar, the city of Babylon was at its height of glory. It was one of the largest and nicest cities in the world. Now, what did he see when he looked down at the city of Babylon? The city was surrounded by a system of double walls. Some scholars say that the outer walls to the city were 17 miles long. 
and were wide enough to have two chariots go side by side on top of it. Now, not everyone agrees with those actual dimensions, but the idea is this city was huge. It had quite a few gates going into the city. The most famous gate was the Ishtar Gate, which was named after the false god Ishtar, which is where we get Easter from. This gate led into the Temple Marduk. It had a processional street that was about a 1,000 yards long, or in other words, it was about 3,000 feet or 10 football fields long. The street was decorated on both sides with enameled bricks that showed 120 lions, which was the symbol of Ishtar, and 575 dragons and bulls, which were symbols of Marduk and Bel. They had at least 50 different temples within the city. So this city was quite large. In verse 30, some translations say house of the kingdom or royal dwelling place. The point being here is a place that the royalty of Babylon could dwell in. It was their capital city. Nebuchadnezzar had enlarged it and made it a beautiful city. Archaeologists have found evidence of 50 different building projects that took place under his reign. And these are just the ones that they found that we know of. It's reported that his main palace was 630,000 square feet. Nebuchadnezzar is responsible for having built the famous hanging gardens. And to best describe it, it was sort of a cross between a building and a mountain. Its foundation was part dirt and part building. It stood over 400 feet high, and it was landscaped with beautiful gardens that appeared to be just hanging from the air. On the top, it had gardens and water to keep the building cool. It even had water flowing down the side of it. They came up with a system of bringing the water up to reach the top of this structure. They would actually hoist it up from the Euphrates River. He built all this just because his wife wanted a cool place to go when it was hot because she was from the mountains of Medea. And she was used to that climate. This structure was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Nebuchadnezzar's sin was pride. He was full of himself. It's easy to see how he got so filled with pride. Keep in mind, in the first dream, Nebuchadnezzar was told that eventually Babylon would fall. But roughly another 30 years have passed, and his kingdom continued to grow and become stronger. Then in this chapter, Daniel told him that he would be removed from power for a period of time, and another year had passed, and once again his kingdom was still getting stronger. Also remember the Babylonian concept of gods. Gods were not thought to be perfect and they changed their minds. It could also be here that Nebuchadnezzar was again challenging God. We saw this back in chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when Nebuchadnezzar asked what God can deliver you from this fiery furnace. The king was looking down at all that he had built. He was reflecting on his own glory. Look at what I have done. Then look at the wording of our next three verses. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar, He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. With the word still in his mouth, his sentence was handed out. A few weeks back, I was north of 
Fairbanks, Alaska with my family. We'd gone up towards the Dalton, and then the next day we were headed down the Steese Highway, headed to Central and to Circle. About 80 miles or so in, I made the comment to my family how nice the highway was. It was paved, and compared to what we'd seen by the Dalton, it was smooth. And no sooner had I said the words, the pavement ended, and most of my family gave me the look, because I had dared to comment about the condition of the road. Well, the same sort of thing here, except in this case, we know the timing was from God. A voice fell from heaven. This was either God himself or an angel. And notice in verse 33 how quick it happened to him. That hour, right away, that same hour, he started to live among the animals and eat grass like the oxen. I think the understanding is that he probably just had a moment in time, a split second to think about what had been said to him. And once the royal attendants found out he was missing and saw his situation, there had to have been a meeting of the minds to figure out what to do with the king. There are some historical records from later on, from the 3rd century B.C., that do validate that Nebuchadnezzar was sick for several years and was out living in the wilderness. It's not too hard to imagine that the king would have been under constant watch by the guards. Nebuchadnezzar was the king. He had brought great success to the empire, so it's easy to think that many in the government would have been hoping for a recovery. Now, the idea of hair like eagle's feathers simply means matted down, long hair that hasn't been taken care of. Pick up our text with verse 34. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Notice once again, it still is the account from Nebuchadnezzar written down by Daniel. At the end of seven years, he raised his eyes toward heaven and his reason returned to him. And then the king praised and worshiped God. The understanding, the implication in this verse is that Nebuchadnezzar finally reached the end of himself and sought mercy from God. I agree with the statement that sanity begins with a realistic understanding of who we are before God. Probably had to be a little bit of a shock to his system as he came to grasp with how he had been living for seven years. At the very least, at the very least, Nebuchadnezzar went from viewing himself as sovereign to acknowledging the sovereignty of Yahweh. Now, verse 35 is interesting. Notice the text. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar finally realized that despite all of our accomplishments, mankind is nothing before God. He controls the armies in heaven. How much more then does he control the armies of this earth? The idea that no one can restrain his hand, the thought behind this, the wording was used to refer to striking the hand of a child and saying to the child, what have you done? So the simple basic thought here is that no one can question God. No one has the right to scold him for his actions. Quite the statement by Nebuchadnezzar because basically he was agreeing with God with the seven years of punishment he received. Notice our last two verses. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth, 
his ways justice, and those who walk in pride, he's able to put down. Not only did his reason return to him, but also his honor and splendor. Recognize here that in that culture, it was very important for royalty to be thought of with honor and respect. This isn't bragging on his part. He was just testifying that the respect that was due to him as king was returned. And notice the text teaches that these things returned to him for the glory of his kingdom. God kept his word and restored the king. His counselors and nobles began to seek him out. And notice, if you will, in verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar didn't even mention his position as king of Babylon. He's been a little bit humbled. But what I really want you to focus on here is the original intent. Think of the impact this would have had on the Hebrew people living in captivity in Babylon. As they read the words of Nebuchadnezzar in verse 37, they would have seen a testimony that even the most powerful man on the earth, the man who led his armies against Jerusalem and took the people captive, even this man was under the sovereign power and control of Yahweh. The Jewish people desperately still needed to know that God had not abandoned them, and he still has a plan for them in their land. This is the reason each of the first six chapters, they end with a demonstration of the sovereignty of God, his faithfulness, and his ability to crush the pride of unconverted mankind. The most powerful man on earth testified after his direct encounter with God that those who walk in pride, he's able to put down. I'd like to close our time for today by telling you the story of a young woman named Christina. Longing to leave her poor neighborhood in Brazil, Christina wanted to see the world. Discontent with a home where she only had a wood pallet on the floor for a bed, a wash basin because there was no running water, and a wood-burning stove. She dreamed of a better life in the city. One morning, she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart. Knowing what life on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter, Maria quickly packed to go find her. On her way to the bus stop, she went into a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. She sat in one of those old-fashioned photograph booths. She closed the curtains and spent all that she could on pictures of herself. With her purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew that her daughter Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were unthinkable before. Knowing this, Maria began her search. Bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with the reputation for streetwalkers and prostitutes, she went to them all. And at each place, she left her picture, taped on a bathroom mirror, tacked onto a hotel bulletin board fastened to a corner phone booth. On the back of each photo, she wrote a note, and it wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out, and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. It was just a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her beautiful face had grown tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, but instead spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she longed to trade these countless beds for her secure wooden pallet. But the village was, in many ways, too far away. And as she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. 
She looked again, and there in the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned, and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Christina had come to the end of herself. She returned home to the loving arms of her family. There's a powerful lesson at work in this text. God was trying to show his people a picture of his love, his sovereignty. And even in the darkest and most desperate times, they longed to return to their land. And part of the message that God conveyed to his people through Daniel is that the day would come when the Hebrew people would return home. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses warned the people of Israel that the time would come when they'd be scattered among the nations because of their lack of faith. The day would come when they would serve the gods of other nations. But Moses also gave them a promise. Listen to verse 29 of Deuteronomy 4. But from there, from those foreign lands, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. God has gone to great effort spreading the message of his unconditional love to mankind and to believers and to unbelievers alike. God lovingly, patiently continues to call us back to him. 1 John 1, 9, written to believers, it testifies, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whatever point you are at in your faith, return home because God is waiting for you. Return home to live in fellowship with God. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.